everybody, can you, can you hear me? Is the mic okay? Oh, good, yeah, good. <laughs> Great. Well, good morning. My name, as Joe said, is Emma. I'm the administrator here, and I lead the club as well. And also, sometimes I get to preach on a Sunday morning, and it's my great privilege to serve you in this way this morning. Um, who here likes hiking? Can you speak? Hiking, walking, hiking. If you can, I can see a few hands. Um, this year, I didn't get to do too much good weather, lack of sea weekends, but there was one. I went on with Suzanne Labour. Is Suzanne here this morning? She is. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't have time to warn you. Um, and we thought I probably should have gone on some hikes before. We did this one this year because it was out of shape anyway. But we walked Purple Mountain. Here we are. It's an out and back trail. It's long. It's supposed to be 22 kilometres, but somehow we did 24. But on the way to the top, I think pretty much non we talked pretty much non-stop during the three or so hours up there. We got the, to the top, admired the view, ate our lunch, had a break, chatted to another group of women, one of only one of two groups of people we saw walking there. And um, they were doing it as a warm-up for the Fundy Trail, and then people were like, okay, this is enough for us. <laughs> but on the way back, we started off cheerful enough, but the sky was darkening, and as we walked back, I'd ignore, on the way up, I'd ignored the rubbish. If you walk or run, never ignore a little niggle, because I had ignored the rub of my shoe, so I had massive blisters on the way down. Um, and the view is great at the top, but the walk is long, and you see trees and puddles and frogs. And, um, no, it's getting <laughs> But anyway, so I think for the last six kilometers, we did not speak. And if you know Susanna or I, we are not here as a few words. <laughs> and we walked about 20 meters apart for the last, like, six kilometers, silent apart from, oh, I think it's around the next corner. Oh, and I did wonder why, and the blame does fall on my shoulders, as I suggested this walk why I'd even decided to do this hike and questioned why I even like hiking and all of my life choices up to that point. We were so grateful to get to the car just as it started to rain. Although I'd read the description of the hike, it, was, it wasn't quite that. But the reason I'm telling you this is that I realized as I was preparing this talk that the distance we walked that day is the same distance that the disciples in the Bible passage we're looking at today walked. It was a different sort of day, and they weren't walking just for a pleasurable weekend activity. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to read the word. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your living word. Lord God, I thank you that it speaks to us today, Lord God. And I thank you, oh Lord, I pray that as we um, look at your word today and consider what you're saying, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see you, Lord Jesus. So let's read the passage from Luke 24, and it's verses 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles, about 11 kilometers from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. 
As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Luke starts his gospel, if you didn't mind, he starts his gospel, it's an account written for Theophilus, it says, by saying that he's undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke gathered eyewitness accounts as he included them in his gospel for a reason. He wrote his gospel and acts, so it's helpful to see it as a continuous word in a way. And it's interesting to think, obviously, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit heavily involved, that Luke selected what to include and what to leave out and ordered it to communicate what has been fulfilled. And this part of that account is so we would have certainty. Luke's gospel contains a lot about the insiders becoming outsiders and the outsiders becoming insiders. And this is one of the great surprises of Jesus the Messiah. Christmas is coming up, and we'll be thinking about these things in the next few weeks even. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, again, the angel appears to Zechariah, a priest in the temple. He's told his wife is going to conceive the child, but Zechariah, the priest who you would think would be ready to hear from God, doesn't believe at first, whereas Mary, an uneducated young woman, to which the angel's message that she would conceive a child, would cost her. It would cost her. It would mean that she needs strength. She accepts the message and believes. All the way through, the insiders of the day, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, are not the first people Jesus reaches out to. 
In fact, he called them out for their behaviour and offended them. Rather, he would go to the outsiders, the shepherds, foreigners, tax collectors, fishermen, rebels, prostitutes and sinners, right through to the criminal hanging on the cross next to him. And all of us long to be on the inside of whatever it is. Um, this is C.S. Lewis's uh, thought to um, some men in the university in 1944, where he talks about the inner ring. All of us long to be in the inner ring, on the inside, especially if the other people are on the outside, and we should check the people inside. We all want to be insiders. The desire is absent even from the disciples. They argue about who should be the greatest, even like a couple of chapters earlier in the Last Supper. Jesus isn't what the Jewish people expected him to be, and even his followers' expectations are often a bit off about him, and it's no different in this passage. Last week, Mark spoke about the calming of the storm on on the hill. (laughs) Wait, hard to follow that. Just saying, it's hard to follow last week's message. When Jesus takes us through storms, he's preparing us to go and take territory for that mission. And this account is similar. Jesus is preparing the departing disciples for mission, to be part of this early church. Exciting. These disciples, though, had become distracted and despondent by what they thought this part of the mission was going to be like. It's Sunday. It's the third day. The disciples, the twelve, and then this extended group of Jesus followers are awakened. They've had three or so years of being with Jesus, and now he's not there. They're traumatized about Jesus' crucifixion, full of grief, possibly confused and scared about what is going to happen next. And the women come back from the tomb and say this to the angels, and Jesus wasn't there, and they were told he was risen from the dead. And in John, we have Mary Magdalene's account of Jesus. Peter and probably John were to the tomb. At the end of this passage, and in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that at some point in the day, Jesus appeared to Simon Peter, but we don't have that account. It's the most monumental moment in all of history, and the first account we have are that he appears first to Mary in the garden near his tomb, and then to two of the disciples, not even the twelve, on the country road. And Cleopas was in the middle he was in the middle of all that happened. It says that he, he was one of the ones who went to the tomb and had a look. And so he was in the middle of all this, but he's on this road and he's still unclear about what happened. But it's no wonder that he, in, in the excitement and uncertainty of the day, two of them go out for a bit of a walk. I understand that. If you like walking, understand that. Get some air and process things. They must have been wondering what their lives would be now. What happens next? What does all this mean? I don't see any Romans leaving Jerusalem or any armies being gathered. What's going on? Does anyone else process things as I walk in? Helps sometimes. It's even better with a friend to vent to. But that's what they were doing. We're given the name of one of the disciples, Cephas, but not the other. And some commentators say that it was most likely his wife. There's uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas. In, in John 19.25, standing near the cross. Maybe it was her. We don't really know. But it kind of makes sense when you read the passage. But where were they going? Maybe their home was in Emmaus. 
so he seems not to know that they, they, they stand still, so he doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem. They think it's weird. How could anyone have missed the events of the last few days? And Jesus just asks them what's going on. Jesus is a good shepherd. He wants to hear how they see things and what they're thinking. Even though he knows, he's drawing them out on this. And then we get the gospel according to Cleopas, who says what's happened over the the last few days, that he said, we had hoped, too, that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. Cleopas was expecting a political leader. He was expecting a Messiah who was a warrior king, who would free Israel from the Romans, just as God had delivered the people of Israel from the land of Egypt many years before. He's gone to see this empty tomb, but maybe he thought, nothing seems to be happening now. What's What's going on now? What now? And Jesus has quite a different plan for the broadcast of the good news. It's through his followers and through his church, as we see in Acts. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom, but as he says all the way through his earthly ministry, this is what the kingdom's like. It's like yeast that's worked through dough, Exodus 13:21. It works like a mustard seed that starts as a tiny seed and then grows into a great seed, as there's a text in this branches. It starts small, takes time to rise, and it may not look all that significant at first. Jesus rebukes his disciples. As foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus walks alongside us in, in our grief, in our suffering, in our struggles, whether we recognize him or not, but he doesn't shy away from challenging and correcting our wrong ideas and beliefs. As Mark said last week, he addressed the disciples' faith before he calmed the storm. And here he addresses these disciples' faith as well on the road. In Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A shepherd's rod and staff keep the sheep on the right path and protect the sheep from harm. Jesus' comfort here in this passage is to keep the disciples from wandering off into wrong beliefs about himself. Jesus is discipling his followers to prepare them for mission. He is tenderly gathering them up and getting them ready. He's discipling the people he's brought on the inside all the way through his ministry. He's been preparing them so that they can go to the outsiders and bring them in. This is his plan to reach the world through his church. But they need to have a right view of Jesus. They need to know, and this is why he talks to them about the scriptures before Jesus arrives. And we need to have a right view of Jesus too. Wouldn't you have in love? As I've been reading this and rereading this in the last few weeks, I'm like, I would love to be there at this bit. When he's talking to them and says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets to explain to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself? Jesus had talked about his suffering when he was with his disciples. In Mark 8, 31, just after Jesus had asked the disciples who they thought he was and who had confessed Jesus as the Messiah, he says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, 
and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And even then, Peter rebuked him for saying such a thing because his idea of a Messiah is for Luke to see. He sees it, but he doesn't see it. And Jesus addresses that strongly and says, you know, says, get behind me, Satan. Like, because Jesus doesn't want to be distracted. He knows where he's going. And Jesus goes on in that passage to talk about taking up your cross before his disciples. You must take up your cross and follow him. And they still don't understand this fully. So coming back to the road to Emmaus, Jesus then begins with the book of Moses right through to the prophets. So that's all the way from Genesis, because the books of Moses are like those first five books of the Bible. Genesis, and then he goes on to the prophets and says all that was said about him. Wow, it must have been amazing. And it says later that their hearts were burning. Have you ever had a conversation where you're talking with people about scripture and suddenly you know God is speaking? Or maybe someone is preaching and you just know God is speaking right to your heart, even in the worship. Don't ignore that burning. Sometimes, like the disciples, after the event, you look back and think, whoa, God was speaking in that conversation, and I didn't realize. I want to know what Jesus said. And we're just given the sentence. And it's a walk I'd love to have been on, blisters or not. But I guess we get a glimpse through the disciples' preaching and acts and the rest of the New Testament. And as we read the Old Testament in light of the New, and we're not on a three-hour walk this morning, so I'll mention a few things that I think Jesus probably included when he said, does not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? As I've said, God had a plan from the beginning. When Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they chose to determine right and wrong for themselves. And as God sends them out of the garden, there's a promise in Genesis 3 of the curses for snakes. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Side note, as the Adam and Eve gone out of the garden, the whole of humanity has become, we've all become outsiders at that point. But there's a promise from the woman's offspring, someone will come who will crush the serpent's head, but in the process, the serpent, Satan, will bruise his heel. So I think he'd have mentioned that. He would have surely mentioned the Passover lamb. As they've just eaten the, the, the Passover in the last few days, and it's no coincidence that Jesus was crucified at Passover, the sacrificial lamb of God. Maybe he talks about the shed blood smeared on the doorpost of God's people, causing the angel of death to pass over them and spare their firstborn while the Egyptians' offspring perished, resulting with the um, people of Israel's deliverance from slavery. Maybe he talks about the sacrificial system and how sacrifices had to be offered over and over again to cover the people's sins. How God was faithful to his covenant promises but the people could not keep their end of the bargain time and time again. How their hearts were hard, but he had promised to turn their hearts to stone and hearts to flesh. How they could not solve the problem of sin, and only he could. He was the perfect sacrifice, once and for all, given to cover our sin and shame. Would he have explained this to them? How Isaiah had, 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 Isaiah, had seen 
a vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up. But that high and lifted up is the kind in Isaiah 52, 13 to 14. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness, likeness. And in Isaiah, this goes on for Isaiah 53, 5 to 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would he have explained that they think of glory as greatness? Like us, we think of glory as the winner of the Grand Prix, standing on the podium, champagne spraying everywhere, fireworks, whatever. But Jesus' glory is shown at the cross. And this is how Jesus enters his glory, in the most unexpected way. God's glory shines out into our lives at the cross. It's the place where we most see what God is like. The servant king loving us so much that he dies in our place. Through the scripture, Jesus explained to them that he came to deal and deliver us from a bigger enemy than the Romans. He came to deliver them from a bigger enemy than the Romans. So the problem, problem wasn't on the outside, but on the inside. How he came to deal with sin and shame and to crush the works of the enemy. To be a servant, humbly laying down his life for all of humanity. I'm sure Jesus would have said so much more and so much better. But we are all outsiders who need Jesus to bring us in through his death on the cross. How important it is for us to keep a right view of Jesus, to know the gospel and the scriptures, Old and New Testament. It will never get old, and it will prevent us from making Jesus in our own image, or use him as a political tool, or expect him to come along on our mission instead of following him into his, as Mark said last week. This book is important. It's how we see Jesus, so keep reading it and asking the Holy Spirit to help you to understand. As we do, we develop the right kind of expectations. Andrew Wilson said in a blog post on St. Theology, I think this is way back in 2012, actually, that when I open scripture in the morning, I am looking for fire. I want passion to rise within for God and his kingdom. I want heat as well as light. I want joy fuel. I want to experience the God about whom I am reading because Jesus was personally explaining to me in the room. Amen to that. That's the end of this encounter with the risen Jesus in Luke 24. They come to their destination and invite Jesus to stay with them as, as it's late. Jesus is their guest, but it's him who breaks the bread. Breaking bread together was important in that culture, and bread is like the, that is like the main part of their diet. It's, it's essential. To, and breaking bread together shows that you are family, and Jesus
he breaks bread with them. And this is the moment their eyes are opened and they recognize him. There's another time we find this phrase, their eyes were opened. And it's again back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve take the fruit from the tree and eat it. Then their eyes were opened and they felt shame and hid. Here in Luke 24, Jesus opens the disciples' eyes and they see Jesus. They see their salvation and their shame and disgrace taken away as they realize he's been talking with them and they realize who their Savior is. And Jesus breaks bread and he's revealed to them. Do you remember the moment your eyes were opened? Um, I remember a time when, uh, it's not my story, but it, back in England, it, it's a time in life group, and uh, some, a couple in our street, we'd got to know them, and, and Tim and I had done a, like a mini alpha with them, a five-part Bible study with them, because they were really open to knowing about Jesus. And, but they hadn't decided yet, and they started coming to our life group. And then one night, another lady in our life group, Jill, said, oh, you know, I, I don't, can't even remember what we were discussing, what the passage was, any, I just can't remember. But Jill said, and my friend Rachel was there, and uh, she said, oh, it's not the healthy that needs a doctor, but it's the sick. And we were carrying on talking, and suddenly Rachel said, I get it. I get it. I don't have to fix myself to come to Jesus. And then, I get it. And so, you know, it was that moment when we were all there and her eyes were opened and she knew that she could come to her Savior and receive his grace and forgiveness. And she didn't have to sort herself out. And it was such a powerful moment. And it's amazing, and it's the work of God when he opens our eyes to understand the scripture, to understand who he is. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus disappears from their sight in this story. I don't know if these two ever finished that meal, maybe the tickets go. But imagine how excited they were when they rushed back to Jerusalem. No doubt a lot quicker than Suzanne and me on our way back from Turtle Mountain. They probably made it in, like, probably an hour and a half less, I'm guessing. I think they got back to where God wanted them to be, with the other disciples, ready to receive more from Jesus, expecting, encouraged, no longer downcast. Later that evening, Jesus appears to this bigger group, and he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. And this is the king we come to remember today as we take communion. The king who gave himself to us, who invites all of us outsiders into his kingdom through his body and blood given to us. We're invited into this upside-down kingdom, into this family joined together in him. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the invitation is there for him to come inside, to repent and turn to him even this morning you can receive his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy. Because Jesus is coming back. And when he returns the second time, everyone will know, believers and unbelievers alike, 
And as we take communion, we remember what Jesus has done for us, but we also remember forward. We won't have to do this forever, as one day we have a certain hope that we will be raised with him and enjoy a feast with him in heaven. So are you maybe disappointed or despondent this morning? Maybe you've heard God's call, as Mark was talking about last week, and you're struggling as things haven't gone as expected. Maybe you're wandering a little aimlessly and trying to figure things out, and you just, like, what happens now? Maybe you're distracted by something you thought would happen, but hasn't in the way with it. Jesus wants to come alongside you and walk alongside you with his Holy Spirit and speak truth and get you back in his purposes. Because encountering Jesus makes all the difference. As we found in the worship today, encountering Jesus makes all the difference. And God wants to invite you in this in this morning to open your eyes to see him, to walk with him and eat with him. So I forgot to say, Bam's coming. <laughs> a few minutes ago. I should have done that a few minutes ago. <laughs> I'm going to pray, and I'm going to hand over to Joe and Angela and everybody else. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I thank you that you reveal yourself to us, Lord God. You are our, as God who walks alongside us, Lord Jesus. You love to us to encounter you. You love to open eyes that are blind, Lord God. You love to shine light into the darkness, Lord God, and I pray that today we would see you, Lord Jesus, as you really are, the suffering servant, high and lifted up, but glorious as well, Lord Jesus. 